0: The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology. We're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk.
1: Is the Anton Savage Show. Much to discuss this morning, including whether or not the DAA is going to be able to serve all of the passengers that are due to be coming its way. Because as you may have heard if you were listening to the show yesterday when Kenny Jacobs was on, they find themselves facing a maximum ceiling, which they would like to breach because they think they have the passenger numbers to do it but which planning prevents. There's also a very interesting poll in the Sunday Independent looking at the political reality of Ireland and also looking at Irish attitudes to some of the big issues, like, for instance, what's happening in Israel and uh, Gaza and like what's happening with the refugees in Ukraine. The other people who are uh, fairly notable in their presence throughout the papers this morning are the Gardaí. And there's a number of stories relating to them, including how well or badly they're getting on in relation to the Kinahan Hutch feud. But one of the more interesting stories Inside the Sunday Times, John Mooney, their crime and security correspondent, has a story that says, a foreign national will almost certainly be appointed to lead Ireland's intelligence service responsible for safeguarding the state from espionage as the government faces an unprecedented national security crisis. And he goes on to write that no senior Garda has applied for the role of Deputy Commissioner responsible for intelligence as policing, as they would incur tax bills of about hundred grand upon retirement due to an error in 2014 introducing tax rules on pensions. And one of the people who was quoted in the piece is Cahill Berry, him, a former commander of the Irish Army uh, Ranger Wing, now TD for Kildare. And he describes the situation as a national embarrassment. He says, you simply cannot have a person from Britain or any other country appointed to this role. You need an Irish citizen who has unquestionable loyalty to the state. He's with us this morning. Calberry, good morning. Why do you need an Irish citizen?
2: Good morning, uh, Anton. Well, first of all, it's entirely consistent with international best practice. You want someone from your home country who was born here, who lives here, who's a passport holder and is absolutely patriotic and loyal to the country that you're in. So uh, and the alternative would be that if there's someone from a, a different jurisdiction appointed, that person would have most likely decades of experience working in the intelligence apparatus of that different jurisdiction. And to bring them in here, I think, would be very unfair both on the individual, first of all, because there'll always be a question mark over their loyalty. But secondly, it's unfair on the junior staff. I think they would be very, very hesitant and and reticent about passing information up the line if there was a non-national there where there was a a question mark over their their true loyalty. And I think it's it's not the way to do business and we need to change this. And
1: and you, you don't think that that has been, that a precedent has been set by Drew Harris by virtue of being the most senior man in a different jurisdictions police force because ultimately it will be him to whom this person answers. So if it is possible for us to hire somebody at that level, likewise if it's possible for us to take the former uh, Boston police commissioner and put them in a senior role in, in police monitoring in Ireland, why is this so special?
2: Yeah, to be honest, it's not an ideal structure in any case. Like every other EU country has a dedicated civilian intelligence service. And Ireland is unique in that we don't have one. And this is a case in point why we should be establishing a dedicated intelligence uh, service. We saw what happened in Israel only four weeks ago. And Ireland in any, uh, I suppose, of all countries... Ireland should be aware of how important it is to provide early warning through the horizon scanning. We've had so much terrorism on this island ourselves, and we've had so many spectaculars. We need to invest properly in our intelligence services so we can get ahead of events and take action before they occur.
1: Col, thank you very much. That's Colberry, Berry, uh, T D for Kildare and former commander of the Irish Army Ranger Wing. If you want to get in touch, five three one oh six at a cost of thirty cent or you can get us O eight seven fourteen hundred one oh six. Connor, you, you're good at um, things relating to finance. I would say the chances of any senior guard saying, No, no, I'm I'm more than happy to sacrifice a hundred grand in pension to do the gig. It's yeah. not a prayer. It seems absurd. And I think if that is the stumbling
3: block to getting people to apply for that job, well, then it needs to be addressed by the Euroctis as a
1: matter of urgency
3: because you can't have a scenario whereby somebody is promoted and then finds they're €100,000 worse off. It's just ridiculous. So if I, I'm not particularly up to speed with the story, but if that is the case, it has to be changed because I would take on board what Carl says, and it is important. But it, what I thought was really interesting was here's a, a significant promotion Within the Garda infrastructure, and nobody, nobody, not a single person, not one person, like that, just doesn't make any sense to me. Because, like, it's in human nature to want to excel in the job that you're you're doing. And if you've got to the stage where you are in the running to become an assistant commissioner, well, then you think that you would want to take the next step. And the fact that everybody who's maybe at the third tier of the Guard of Forces going, yeah, no, that's not for me. Well, then something needs to be done to address that
1: And that's echoed in a lot of the coverage where there's talk of whether or not the morale in Angarda Shia Kona is in a good place at present. The other analysis in in this weekend looking at at morale and attitudes is uh, Sunday Indo, which has uh, one of their big polls, the Ireland Thinks poll, looking at politics and looking at our views uh, of everything else. Stephen, anything in particular jumping out at you?
4: I think there's a, there's a few interesting things. And I think the, the key thing with all these polls is context, right? Because the polls in isolation, they happen so frequently. You know, each paper has one about every, every other week now. So we're constantly being told where the, the different parties sit. Um, but it's the difference both week on week versus the polls we saw last week, but also year on year that start to get really interesting. And I think the things that stood out for me were the fact that if you compare this to the, the Red Sea poll last week, we're kind of seeing almost the opposite story, right? So last week it was all doom and gloom for the government. All, uh, all on the rise for the opposition and Sinn Féin. We're seeing essentially the opposite story this week, that there's been a drop in support for, for Sinn Féin and we're seeing an increase in popularity for the government parties. But I think, again, if we look at the year... i just to
1: give those numbers even, we have uh, Sinn Féin on 31 minus 4, Fine Gael 21 plus 2 and Fianna Fáil 18 plus 1. They're still extraordinary numbers for Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil in comparison to Sinn Féin. Like 10 years ago, you would have thought never.
4: Yeah, it's I, I suppose. And again, that's the context of time, I guess. But if you look at the context of even a week, it's an improvement, I guess, is what we're seeing. And, uh, you know, albeit from maybe a very low base. But I think the year on year is probably the thing that stood out for me, because what it says is that it confirms a poll finding after the budget last year, when support for Sinn Féin also fell back from 36% to 32 and eventually slipped below the 30% barrier as the once-off cost of living measures came through. And what we're seeing here is cost of living has dropped 10 points in terms of a concern within the poll and the speculation and it you know it's not sort of a, a genius thing to do here but it seems really obvious now is if this is the bounce the government gets when it has a really positive budget well then there is a strong probability that if you give this one more year you have one more budget like this then we'll see a general election very closely run afterwards.
1: And that's mimicked or, or rather that's echoed in a lot of the analysis in the papers saying one more decent budget and Leo Radker is going to call it in November of next year.
0: And I suspect that will probably happen. But as they say, a week is a long time in politics. So, I mean, we've seen that evidence in the two polls between this week and last week. So let's see what happens in a year.
1: The, the one man who I assume would be very pleased with it is is on uh, Taunas the Mihal Martin. We were speaking to him yesterday about uh, opinion polls generally and he was fairly scathing about them. His his view was that they greatly underestimate the success of Fianna Fáil and, and will do so again. But if he has just come back off his Ordesh speech yesterday to get the little bounce that is in here and to have his own party leadership, because he's the most popular party leader in the country, I would think he'd kind of regard that as a bit of a result.
3: Oh, I think they all do. And I think politicians always downplay uh, opinion polls when they're bad and they're always delighted with them when they're good. Uh, so uh, Mihal Martin's on 45%. He's the most popular leader in the country, followed by Mary Lou Macdonald on 41%. And Holly Carnes on 41%. And then Leo Varadkar is on 39%. I think one of the interesting things in the poll, though, is... The abysmal performance of the Labour Party. I mean, I think it's really striking and I know it's not a new development in Irish politics, but the fact that they are absolutely mired on 3%, like what future does the party have? And if I was one of the the, the senior people within the Labour Party, I would be absolutely terrified going into the next election because it's feasible they'll be left with maybe one, maybe two seats or maybe even no seats at all. And when you think about where we were in the mid-1990s with the spring tide and, you know... the the, the Even more recently with Gilmore. Absolutely more recently. But, I mean, something is incredibly wrong with them. And it's not like, you know, Ivana Bacic is doing what she can, Jed Nash is making a serious running when it comes to the cost of living crisis, but they're not making any inroads into the electorate. And it's just, it must be a a really disheartening time for them. Uh, The Green Party are on 4%, that's no change. Social Democrats, 5%, no change. It's largely, as Stephen says, it's not very dissimilar to the polls that have been running for the last 12 months. But, you know, without wanting to uh, resort to the old cliche, all of the polls are kind of meaningless and when it comes to the actual general election, that's when all the big, you know, the, the big outcomes will be revealed. And I suspect that, you know, we will probably see a scenario in early 2025 or late 2024 when you will have the same parties returned to government, as is the case now. Because like everyone's talking about, oh, Sinn Féin, like, there's almost this narrative building up that Sinn Féin are the inevitable next government, but they still only have 31% of, of, of the electorate's support. And they might have fifty, sixty seats next next time. But they might also have a little coalition partner in the form of Fianna Fail. This is also very possible because you know the the, the, the the things can change very quickly in politics.
1: Now, as to the issues underpinning this, because the Sunday Indo does a breakdown, Claire. One of the the top three by a mile: housing, cost of living, and healthcare. It is hard to see the first of those being resolved in the next 12 months, if that's the kind of duration that we're looking at for the next election. Housing is not going to be gone off that list by the time they're offering themselves up to the voters.
0: No, it most certainly is not. But, you know, I just think in general, people don't see any news about a solution to the housing policy. You know, all the politicians come out and they talk about it and it's oh so terrible. Nearly as if they're Looking in on a country, I know that's a desperate problem we have, yes. But we've, nobody has said, right, this is exactly what we're going to do. And I do think that the electorate are looking for that. I mean, there's loads of different issues with housing.
1: I think Owen O'Brien would say that he has a very clearly delineated policy. Now, as to whether or not it is practical is a different question. But I think Owen O'Brien would say, there's the Sinn Féin roadmap. Here's what we're going to do. Just light the blue touch paper and away we go.
0: Okay, well, maybe he does and he does and you are right in that uh, regard. But I just don't think that it's being put out in front of people. As in, I have a number of children, you know, between late, mid to late 20s and early 30s. And that group are struggling, really struggling to get the deposit for a house. And then there's another group who are lower down, who can't get house. Like it seems to be across the board at a practical level, Anton.
1: The other thing that gets uh, addressed within this, and I think this is, is intriguing in some of, the, sort of the, the subtlety of the view that people have. Stephen, there's a lot of analysis on um, refugees and a lot of analysis in relation to uh, the Middle East. And it, it's, it's nuanced. There, the view seems to be a general consensus that um, there should be a ceasefire. So 84% saying, yes, immediately there should be a ceasefire. But on the same side as that, there is a huge degree of sympathy for what was done to Israel by Hamas. That it, it isn't anti-Israeli, it isn't anti-Zionist, it's both things together. This was an atrocity, but this is an overblown response.
4: Yeah, and this I think is where you need to be really careful with polling data. Because it's one thing to ask people about things that are in a way relatively simple, right? So housing, cost of living... Things on a national level that are probably easily understood and impact people in their day to day lives, even down to the politicians that they're going to vote for. What we're seeing happening in Israel and Palestine at the moment is so incredibly complex um, and so incredibly tragic um, from a humanitarian point of view. But if you start to ask people in a poll situation these kind of questions, I, I agree. I think it's really interesting to see um, the breakdown in terms of the statistics. But I think. Trying to draw conclusions from this that there is support for Hamas or there is support for uh, certain sides. I mean, I think one of the the absolute standout numbers uh, for me in all of this was um, I think it was a 15 or 16 percent of people who didn't feel that Hamas should be um, labelled as a terrorist organisation. I mean, it was just a, a stop you in your tracks type um, kind of um, comments to, to come out. But this is covered in real detail. And I think one of the things that the independent, the Sunday Independent have done really well today is that in addition to the, the polls that are there, they've layered it in with an awful lot of really interesting um, um, interviews. And one of those is with, um, I think it's the Palestinian ambassador to Ireland. Um, and there's a really, really good piece there which goes into real detail. Um, but again, just underscores the complexity of this as a, as a story.
1: But there again, I mean, some of the things that they were asked, which side in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict do you sympathize with more? 50% say the Palestinian side, 30% say both sides equally, 10% say the Israeli side and 10% say don't know. I would have thought that's a an interesting insight and not an overly challenging question for a pollster to put, no?
4: Not an overly challenging question, but it probably kind of looks at sort of what type of questions we should be asking. I mean, like, I suppose there, the question I would have is, what is the value here in taking sides in a conflict like this? I mean, like, ultimately, sorry, Connor. I mean, this is ultimately a humanitarian issue. So to understand the sides that Irish people would take, I'm just not sure the value that Connor kind of... Connor
3: may have a view. Go for it, I think you're 100% correct, Stephen. And I think that question is entirely wrong. And in fact, that question leapt off the page at me as being ridiculous because which side in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict do you sympathise with more Israel, 10%, as you said, 51% Palestinian, 29% both. But I don't know if the conflict is between Israel and the Palestinian people. That, like, it, it's absurd to suggest that it is because the vast majority of people in Gaza, the vast majority of people, the vast majority of Palestinians are innocent people and you, it would be impossible not to sympathise with those people. So the question, if you were going to frame it that way, and as I say, I don't think you should frame a question that is so complex in such a simplistic way, but like, which side in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict do you sympathise with more? Hamas or Israel? And I, th- I suspect totally if the, the question was Israel. asked in that way, you would get a completely different answer. Um, so I, I, it is incredibly complicated and it's, it's interesting to look at the figures, but I don't know if we're learning a lot. Because also, and and again, when, when, when pollsters contact people, like an awful lot of people wouldn't really have the knowledge of what's going on in, in this particular conflict to answer with any kind of credibility. And like, I suspect all of us would have to hold our hands up to some degree in that, in that respect. So it's interesting but I don't know if it really tells well, us the huge Well then where amount. do you
1: stand on the similar question that was asked in relation to the refugee crisis out of Ukraine? Because this is one that surprised me slightly, the, the numbers involved. Has Ireland taken in too many refugees in the past year? Two thirds of people say, yep.
3: Yeah, I, again I have a problem with that because what has been happening in Ukraine has been appalling. And I, I think we, had, as, a, as a country, ha, haven't had a moral responsibility to take in those people. And we, 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 we could have taken in more, we might have taken in less. But I mean, I, I, I would find it difficult to answer that question, although we've taken in too many. You take in as many as is necessary. And when you, when you think about the number of, of refugees across, across the world, the numbers that we have taken in as a result of this conflict are relatively small.
1: Which is not the view that's expressed here. Do you, Even when you no. go to do you think Ireland is too generous about right or generous enough in terms of social welfare towards Ukrainian refugees? Again, two-thirds of people saying we're too generous.
0: And that would be what you'd be hearing across the country. We we had... It. Is it? You would, yeah, would expect that. that? Yeah, I would think that. Yeah, I would think that. We had a situation in the village I live in, which is a small west of Ireland village where our population was doubled literally overnight with uh, Ukrainians coming into the hotel and a local uh, a school or a home for disabled children, which had been closed down and they moved in there. Now, they've integrated very well uh, they're very hardworking people. The experience I have had of them. But interestingly enough, we opened modular housing in Sligo. You may, you may um, have, have read about it. And they went into a, a very nice settled area in Sligo Town. The houses were lovely, but um, the general gist of people, I did a lot of interviewing around the area and in the houses, it wasn't unwelcoming, it wasn't unkind. But when one lady said to me, I have two sons who have gone to Australia for a couple of years to make money to come back and buy a house. I've lived in this house all my life. And across the road, these people are driving into this beautiful house with a lovely garden, and they're very small, but they are very attractive. It's hard to answer those sort of questions, Anton. You know, people felt that their own children had been on the housing list for a long time, and these people had come in and taken houses. And that's the, you know, that's the feeling. Nothing about racism weren't against them, welcomed them in, say hi to them and all of that. Um, But there is a feeling of that, I think.
1: But are those two not in, in direct contradiction to each other? You're not welcoming somebody in if the minute they close their door, you're expressing resentment for the fact that they're there.
0: I think it's not the resentment for them being there. I think it's more, why were they looked after before me? Well, and so it might not be resentment towards the people. Sorry, Connor, It's more resentment towards the system.
3: Connor, But the reason they were looked after is because their country was torn apart by a war. Like, that, 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 that that's a very simplistic answer. But that's why we have tens of thousands of Ukrainians what? here and that's the thing that I think people need to understand like, th- none of those people I'd say very few of them would like to be in the west of Ireland or the east of Ireland or the north of Ireland or the south of Ireland they're here because of the, of the conflict so we have to be as generous as we possibly can for but the duration of
1: the, that conflict the tide of that support and sympathy is going out
3: maybe maybe it is but uh, you know the, the, the reality is we were very welcoming to them when, in the initial phase and I think most people are still broadly of that view
1: Well, what do you make of that then, Stephen? Because there's been a couple of things. We've seen kites being flown about the level of of, uh, welfare supports that would be given. We've seen kites being flown about whether or not Ukrainian refugees should be afforded special status, which we were falling over ourselves to provide them when uh, the war originally kicked off. And now we're seeing figures suggesting that the general consensus, according to this poll, is that we have taken in too many refugees and been too generous to them. That's a big shift from the level of stand with Ukraine, flags in the windows that we were at when this conflict began.
4: When's the last time the top story on a news bulletin you watched was about the war in Ukraine? Like, wh- like when was it? That's, That's a really a good, point. That's like, a very so, good point. That's so a very good point. Tell me when that was. Mm. Right? When was it the front page splash on your paper? Mm. When, like, when was it your trending topic on social media? The reality is this war has been going on for years now and there is so much conflict in the world. Right. There is so much displacement of people that it is really hard for this to remain the thing that we think about top of mind all the time. And the reality is that as the war in Ukraine seems more distant for obviously anyone who's not there, if you're in it, I'm sure it's anything but distant. Or if you're related to anyone who's there, it's anything more distant. But if you're here, then it just becomes something you think about less often. And so then what happens is the problems that Ireland has structurally, you saw them, health housing, cost of living, they haven't gone away, right? They get conflated. And so the two start to merge and we, we, start, we start taking this, you know, influx of refugees and the problems we have with our housing and health and we start bringing them together and looking to blame one for the other. And then you get this type of insight. I mean, again, this is tragic. You know, Connor made the point. People aren't choosing to come here, you know, with the greatest respect to the two people who went to Australia I mean, what a privilege to be mm. able to go to another country and get a job and do work. But e- it, 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 even it, that
1: though, Stephen, if you look at the the story um, directly beside some of the polls in the Sunday Independent, refugee numbers need to slow down, uh, quotes for Adkar. There has been a lot of discussion of the suggestion that people are not leaving Ukraine by choice, but they may be selecting which European member state they go to by choice and that we, now again I'm paraphrasing a lot of the kites that have been flown, but fundamentally the suggestion is that we have been erroneously making ourselves too attractive. That's a a huge shift from where we were. That's a huge shift from we're we're effectively going to personify the Statue of Liberty and Indians come, we'll look after you. We've gone from there, haven't we? Mm.
4: Well, again, it's this, this is a lot of this, I think, is to do with recency. So I think when when conflict is in your face and you're getting, you know, the top story on every news bullet and every hour about a war that's happening and you're looking at pictures on your screen, the level of sympathy you're going to have for people fleeing that conflict is absolute and immediate and we will do anything because we are, do not have short memories. And we remember what it was like when there was no food in Ireland and people left in their hundreds of thousands. You know, like, we have been these people who did not choose to go to other countries because we didn't like living on the island we were on. But we had to go through famine. But that's a bit that surprises me.
1: I would have thought that a memory that took 150 years to build would last longer than 18 months before it started to ebb away.
4: I think the reality of the news cycle today and the level of conflict that exists in the world means that it is very hard to maintain that level of top of mind.
0: But on that point, two stories that just jump out at me over the last couple of weeks. One was that we give double the amount of social welfare. So 200 euro as opposed to some of the other Europeans are around 100 euro. And also another story that came to mind, actually, that we would have got a lot of text into uh, the radio station about, where they there was another story where they said that um the Ukrainians weren't allowed to go, ho- go on holidays, that they would lose no, their Oh, this is if you go home for Christmas, you, you won't get your place. Yeah. So, but that's, you're right, that, the, can you see the slight shift and even a shift on the news stories that are being covered plus the fact that what we're seeing about what's happening um all over the world but particularly the images of the children um you know it's just it's sickening actually you know
1: we were talking earlier on about the political side of things and uh, Connor had raised questions about labor and their their lack of purchase in terms of the 3% that they're currently it's 3% isn't that 3%, right? That's 3% right, yeah. that they're currently on Uh, text saying, Labour are unseen and unheard. They just sit there in the doll wasting oxygen. We have a Labour TD in North Cork, totally useless, never seen or heard. That's why they're disappearing, in my humble opinion. I am sure there are many at many levels in the Labour Party who would seek to disagree with that. 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. Also, we're talking about Obama and the effect that he had or didn't have when he was elected um, way back when. A text saying, I'm centre-left, but Obama was probably the worst American president ever. He was just all talk and a waffler. Worse than Donald Trump. (laughs) Uh, According to this particular (laughs) centre-left person. Moving on to other stuff. There is a story on the front page of the uh, business post. Varadkar, scrap Dublin airport cap or Irish economy will suffer. So this is a cap to the amount of passengers that can travel through Dublin airport. It is a function of planning. It is a rule instituted by Fingal. And according to Kenny Jacobs, who was talking to us yesterday morning, the chief executive of DAA, they've been trying to get rid of this since 2008.
2: We've been trying to change it since 2008, but a few things have gotten in the way. But we are getting a new planning application into Fingal County Council in a number of weeks. Once that gets approved, that will allow us to grow beyond 40 million in the coming decade and beyond, which is the right number for Dublin Airport the planning condition that goes back to 2008, I would say, is it's now quite old. Does it reflect the reality on on how people are getting to and from the airport and the use of surface access? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. The planning that we will need going forward, look, we, we need to build. We need to build more terminal capacity.
1: And that's Kenny Jacobs speaking to us yesterday. And Kenny is, is uh, quoted heavily in the Business Post from that interview going on to say um, it, they will take capacity elsewhere. Elsewhere won't be to other Irish airports. In reality, it'll be to places like Manchester and Edinburgh. Explain one bit of this to me, Connor. We have a door being pushed open by the Taoiseach, who says this should change, Erlingus, who says it should change, Ryanair, who says it should change, and the Dublin Airport Authority, who says it should change. And it's still going to take probably two years to change. How is that possible? Well, the council
3: is looking after the planning application for start, so the, con- the, con- the, the council dances to a different beat, maybe to the Two government. Two years. Though. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. You know, what I was wondering is. If it's going to, if, it, if Kenny Jacobson, if the DAA knew that a planning application to increase it from 32 to 40 and maybe to 50 was going to take two years, why didn't they make the planning application two years ago? Like, or
1: 2008, he, as the <laughs> point is
3: made But like, because he, he, he was saying in your, in, in, your, in your interview that they've been doing a lot to try and see the cap increase over recent years. Well, lodge, ha, if they'd lodged the planning application two years ago, we might be getting to a point in early January where it would be increased. But there is so much that is dysfunctional about about the the whole DAA thing and and about the whole airport infrastructure I mean the very fact that we have been waiting for uh, Metro to take people from Dublin Airport into Dublin City Centre since I was in short pants and that's a long long time ago Ah. Um, and like we're still nowhere near it I mean like I I would and you keep hearing this talk about oh Metro North is going to be built Metro North is going to be built I mean like when is that going to happen because you know we need to work out a way that we can get all of these extra 8 or 10 or 15 or 20 million people to and from the airport also I think we need to invest more in quieter planes less polluting planes and all of that stuff needs to happen in tandem it's not just a question whereby Dublin City Council or Fingal or whatever it might be will say oh look, you can you can have your planning application everything is grand because you know the, the reality is that the infrastructure
1: needs to be in place and it's not there yet But it does seem to be very strange to end up in a situation where the airport is telling us look we know there will be custom who will be people who come in wanting yep. to do business, who come in and want to spend money, who even just want to transit through Dublin Airport and pay us a couple of fees to so do and we'll have to say, no, get lost because we can't take you.
3: Absolutely. And that's absolutely ridiculous because we are a, a, an economy that is to some degree built on tourism we want to welcome all of these people in and the very fact that we would have these people clamouring at our door wanting to come and visit the Cliffs of Moher or the, or the Giants Causeway or whatever it might be and we have to say no lads we're full but you could go to Edinburgh or maybe you could check out Manchester or you know Brad- Leeds Bradford or whatever it might be it's absurd and it needs to be addressed and it needs to be addressed quickly Have you ever seen the Giants Causeway? I've It's crushing disappointment. No, you see,
1: you've made a terrible mistake there, Anton. Let me explain why.
0: (laughs) That's terrible, Anton. (laughs) I'll
1: tell you what, explain why after this break, Connor will will do his party political broadcast on behalf of the Giants Causeway in two minutes. Connor got distracted during the break with a conversation that I didn't quite understand between himself and Stephen, so maybe he's forgotten about the Giants Causeway, have you?
3: No, no, I have not at all. Now, you see, your mistake, Anton, is is one that a lot of people make, is that you probably travelled specifically to see... I giant do. Col- giant calls away. Col- and when you do that, it's kind of underwhelming because you've travelled maybe two and a half hours and you're going, is that it? Meh. But if you just happen upon the Giant's Causeway, if you're in the area and you go, oh my God, look! The Giant's Causeway is three kilometres that way, and you turn the corner and you see it. It is really impressive, and then you get to see all these tourists being almost washed away by the waves because they're thinking, I'm going to stand by the sea and have a look, and they're absolutely saturated. And there's a lot to see there. But the key thing is that you don't, it's, you don't travel specifically to see it because then it might be a bit so purge
1: your mind of the existence of the Giant's Causeway and, then, and treat it as a surprise. You, know when you, you can go
3: and visit the Bushmills Distillery, which isn't a million miles away. The
1: Glens of Antrim are stunning. <laughs> stunning and only around and the then, corner. And then there are the Giants Causeway. I've heard about that place. Let's go and have Sorry,
0: a look. Ben Bulbin and Sligo.
1: OK, look, before we end up there, turning this entire thing into an exercise for Tourism Ireland, 53106 if you want to get in touch or you can get us on WhatsApp 087 1400 106. Text saying, more shocking news, Dublin Airport is not the only airport in Ireland. Shannon, Cork and Knock are all about a two hour drive from Dublin. Oh, how you dubs hate to hear that. As I say, if you want to get in touch, Five three one zero six or oh eight seven fourteen hundred one zero six. We were speaking earlier on about the Irish attitudes to the conflict between uh, Hamas and Israel, or Israel and Palestine, depending on which view you take of it. Do you think, Stephen, from reading the sort of mood music in the coverage this weekend, there is any purchase developing for the idea of a ceasefire?
4: Uh, there's no doubt it's the hope. Um And that opinion is informed not just by what's being covered in the papers this weekend, but our day job involves listening to what the public talk about on social networks. Right. Not just in Ireland, but, but across the world. And the ceasefire is the absolute thing.
1: that This that, is analytical. This is what you do. Yes, that,
4: that, that it, is, it is the single greatest hope that, that everyone has. Right. So, I mean, you, you find this no, no matter the issue or, or the topic, there will obviously be misinformation, disinformation, and you have two obviously opposing sides both spreading information around this. But outside of that, if you look at the conversation that's happening by people who are not directly involved, ceasefire is like it's the word that just comes up again and again and again. So it's now again with the qualifier there is that this is in hope rather than expectation. And, and that's a key thing to, to remember.
1: Well, that's interesting because yesterday we were speaking to the Tunisian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Micheál Martin, and I put it to him that Anthony Blinken might be in the uh, Middle East, but that America's position has been hugely supportive of Israel. And what he intimated was that a lot of the work that was going on behind the scenes in terms of American foreign policy was pushing the idea that a ceasefire was fast going to become a necessity. Hannah McCarthy is with us. She's in uh, Tel Aviv as we speak. Hannah that idea of a softening of the military aggression on the Israeli side the possibility of a ceasefire are you getting any inkling that that is getting to be political politically acceptable in Israel
5: uh, well to be honest I, I've gone to the I went to the first uh, rally in Tel Aviv that called for a ceasefire and it was very very small and I wouldn't say it's reached any sort of critical mass. The main focus um, of anyone who's calling for a cessation uh, in the hostilities is the families of the hostages. And again, the latest we've heard from um, US Secretary uh, Anthony Blinken, who's in Israel, or was just in Israel for his third trip to the region, is that uh, he's kind of rejected the idea of a ceasefire, but instead using this kind of language, we've now heard a lot of a humanitarian pause, the idea that there'll be a break you know, temporarily to allow more humanitarian aid in and, you know, some uh, Palestinians and foreign nationals out. But really, you know, Israel will be allowed to continue to wage their war. He met with Arab leaders uh, recently who all called for a ceasefire, but he, you know, said that that wasn't the kind of position uh, that the U.S. was supporting.
1: And did you get any sense of whether or not, at uh, of what the end game is from an Israeli political perspective? Is, is there much in the way of conversation? Is there much of the way of uh, predictions about where this all comes to a conclusion?
5: Uh, I think what we're hearing from the Israeli political establishment is chaos and a complete lack of long-term strategy. And I think that's kind of the view of a lot of, you know, you know commentators inside that, you know, you have such a fractured, coalition that on one hand someone is saying that the IDF will be you know occupying Gaza for years another person is saying you know the Palestinian authority will have to you know take control you have other people who are saying you know uh, Palestinians in Gaza should be divided up and you know, sent out as refugees to countries around the world there isn't you know a unifying policy and i think that's part of the reason why U.S. Secretary of State, um, Anthony Blinken, was in Israel because he wants to, you know, encourage Israel to formulate, you know, the plan for the day after they, you know, quote unquote, win the invasion, you know, who is going to look after uh, Gaza and rule Gaza. And that's why he's actually currently in a meeting with uh, Palestinian uh, President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, We're seeing signs that the view is that, you know, the Palestinian Authority, which has not had, you know, a, a kind of, proper governing process in Gaza since 2007, you know, will take over the governance of the Gaza Strip, along hopefully with support from Arab states and, you know, the international community.
1: And find themselves dealing with an extraordinary humanitarian crisis.
5: I, I know, again, you know, we, we heard that. So since the 21st of October, 450 trucks of aid have gotten in to Gaza. And and before the 7th of October, 500 trucks of aid were going in every day. So there is just a chasm in the aid needs of the Palestinian population versus what's getting in. And again, we still don't have a conclusion on this debate over whether fuel will be allowed in, fuel which is needed by hospital and fuel which is needed by, you know, um, the plants that like provide clean water and pipe water to Palestinians. We, we've heard basically you know experts saying there is no way that you can buy trucks, send in enough water for Palestinians. You know, there has to be, you know, pipes working uh, and we need Israel to be actually uh, supplying that water through their own water pipes that they have kind of an arrangement with Gaza to supply.
1: Hannah, thank you very much for joining us this morning. That's Hannah McCarthy who is reporting there for us from uh, Tel Aviv. It just sounds horrendously bleak, Claire, doesn't it?
0: Absolutely. I I was looking, as Conor and I were saying earlier on, you're just falling upon it on Instagram and social media. But a doctor yesterday who was using disinfectant because he has no anaesthetic to amputate someone's leg. The children and, and the children, all of us have children and to see the innocent little children and Blinken, one thing he was very strong about is day two. What are these children that are going to survive going to turn out like? I mean, it's actually terrifying.
1: And this is the point that has been made, that if you wanted a recruitment vehicle for Hamas, it would be hard to find a better one than what has been happening. Obviously, unfortunately, this is something that we will be returning to in shows uh, later on. Um, big thank you thank you to the panel this morning that's Claire Ronan broadcaster with Ocean FM uh, Stephen O'Leary who is president of the Dublin Chamber of Commerce and MD of Olytico and Conor Pope consumer affairs correspondent with the Irish Times and occasional pro bono representative of Falchar. We'll be back <laughs> after this break. The Anton Savage show brought to you by PwC Sunday mornings from 10
2: on News Talk.